Buongiorno, benvenuto, and welcome to episode 16 of City Breaks Florence, an episode which is going to be devoted to perhaps the most famous Florentine of them all, Michelangelo. Florence is certainly very proud of him, and he was proud of Florence, the city where he was born and where he first trained and became an artist. He used to sign later works as by Michelangelo of Florence, a sign that he never forgot his roots, even though in mid-career he went to Rome and did much more work there. That notwithstanding, some of his best sculptures are still to be seen here in Florence, and it's significant, I think, that he was very clear that he wanted to be buried in Florence. He left specific instructions that his body should be brought back to his home city, smuggled out of Rome if need be, and buried in the tomb in Santa Croce. So in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the two museums in Florence which are most famous for showing his work. That would be the Bargello and the Accademia. So a little bit of history on both of those, followed by some biographical notes about Michelangelo, concentrating particularly on the time that he spent in the city. Then a rundown of where in Florence you can find connections to him, see his work, which is in fact spread out over a number of museums, and see his tomb. And then a bit more background information on perhaps the two most famous works in the city. That would be the Pieta, which is in the Cathedral Museum, and the Statue of David, the original of that being in the Accademia, and a copy in the Piazza della Signoria. So I hope the episode will be really a roundup of all the things it's useful to know if you're going to Florence on a search for Michelangelo. And let's face it, his connection with the city is probably one of the reasons why it's such a popular city break destination. So to begin with then, let's think about the Palazzo del Bargello, as it was known when it was built in the 13th century, and which today is just called the Bargello. It was built originally to be a seat and official residence for the Podesta, who was one of the important uh, members of the Signoria. Job description today might perhaps be chief magistrate. So he was the person who oversaw the administration and particularly the legal aspects of running Florence. The legal side of things became more and more important and by 1502 the building was known as a courtroom and a prison. It was probably one of the most feared buildings in the city in fact which is easy to forget when you go in now and it's so beautiful. But quite a number of the prisoners who came here and were tried were sentenced to death and the place for their execution was exactly here as well. If you stand in that beautiful central courtyard, look round thinking how lovely and tranquil it is, I'm afraid you are standing in the very place where executions took place. So the scaffold was erected pretty much next to the fountain in the central courtyard and the executions carried out there. The Bargello was also somewhere where people were tortured, so very much a place of fear and dread. Prisoners were often whipped through the streets on the way to the Bargello, so everybody was reminded frequently about what sort of place it was. But, in fact, a little piece of history was made there in 1786 because it became the first prison in Europe to ban capital punishment. And these days, it's entirely a gallery, a sculpture gallery, in fact, and one which I've seen described as, quote, the world's most important museum of Renaissance sculpture. It's certainly full of lots of goodies. There are individual rooms dedicated to some of the most famous sculptors, to Michelangelo, for example, and to Donatello. And one interesting thing that people sometimes miss is the two prize-winning entries for the competition which was set up to commission an artist to design the baptistery doors. You may remember we talked about that in episode two. The two best entries were deemed to be by Giberti and Brunelleschi. 
And if you remember, it was suggested they might work together. And in fact, Brunelleschi circumvented that and ended up doing the work solo. If you remember, they'd been challenged to produce something on the theme of Abraham's sacrifice of his son Isaac. And both their works on that theme are displayed here side by side. So you can have a look and see if you would have chosen one over the other. Or whether you agree that you really can't choose between them and you two would have given the commission to them jointly. It's worth saying that although the Bargello is mainly a sculpture museum, there is a lot of other stuff there. There are whole sections on things like jewellery and bronzes. There's enamelware, there are coins, there's an ivory collection, a lot of textiles. So if you do want to see some of all those things, then you obviously need to allow for a longer visit. And the second museum that's very much associated with Michelangelo then is the Accademia. It's billed as being home to a large collection of paintings by Florentine artists from the period mainly 1300 to 1600. But in fact, it's really famous above all because it's the home of the David statue. I'm fairly sure that that's what makes it the second most visited art museum in the whole of Italy. The first one being, in fact, also in Florence, the Uffizi. In 2016, for example, they had almost one and a half million visitors. It has a very different, rather less bloodthirsty history than the Bargello, but the Accademia is also a long-standing institution in Florence. It was founded in the 18th century, and you'll hear the word academic in the title, and that's because it was built as an extra to the Academy of Fine Arts, founded in 1784. So the Accademia was a building next door, they took over an ancient hospital and a convent, in fact, to create it. And it was for the use of the students at the Academy of Fine Arts. It was a place where antique artworks could be displayed so that the students could go in and practice drawing and painting them. Gradually, it, it began to acquire artwork of its own, often, for example, from convents or monasteries, particularly when the arts were suppressed under Napoleon, for example. So gradually, it became not just an institute for study, it became an art gallery in its own right. It acquired its most famous exhibit, the Michelangelo David, in 1873. Until that point, the statue had been displayed in the Piazza della Signoria, but it had been damaged on one or two occasions, and there were fears that it really wasn't safe there, either from the weather or from possible vandals. So it was decided to move it. It came to the Galleria, an architect Emilio de Fabris was engaged to decide how it should best be displayed and he built a tribune for it which was to stand under a large skylight so that it would be seen up high and well lit absolutely at its best. I'll come back to David a little later on but for the moment just wanted to mention the other famous work by Michelangelo which is also in this gallery and that's The Prisoners or sometimes it's known as The Captives. It's a sculpture which Michelangelo was commissioned to produce in 1505 as part of a massive project, i.e. the proposed tomb for Pope Julius II. He wanted his future tomb to be really the most magnificent tomb in the whole of Christendom, and he'd planned for it to be decorated by about 40 figures and for the whole thing to be on display in St Peter's in Rome. Michelangelo took this all very seriously. He himself went for several weeks to the quarry to choose the marble himself that he was going to use. Then he got to work on the project, but in fact, at a later date, they ran out of money and it was decided that the whole thing would be cancelled. Michelangelo saw it as an allegorical work. His prisoners were 
designed to illustrate the idea that the human soul is imprisoned by the flesh, prey to all sorts of temptations. The work was finished and found in his workshop after his death, at which point his nephew donated it to Duke Cosimo de' Medici, who put it in the Bobbly Gardens, in the garden of his own house. And it wasn't until 1908 that it was moved to the Academia. And although it's certainly Michelangelo's David, and to a lesser extent the four captives sculptures, which attract so many visitors, there is in fact a lot else to see. There are tapestries, paintings, sculptures, and a quite interesting display of plaster cast models, which one particular sculpture, Lorenzo Bartolini, used for his finished work. So let's move on to Michelangelo himself. Before I give you any biographical details, I thought it might be quite nice to set him in context and reiterate just how important he's always been to Florence by reading you a quotation from Giorgio Vasari's Lives of the Artists, in which he explains what it is he thinks were the reasons why Michelangelo was so admired and respected by the public and by fellow artists, and also makes a point of linking him to his home city of Florence. So this is what Vasari wrote, quote, The almighty creator resolved to send to earth a spirit capable of supreme expression in all the arts, one able to give form to painting, perfection to sculpture, and grandeur to architecture. He decreed that Florence should be the birthplace of this divinely endowed spirit. So that's a good summary, really, of the three art forms in which Michelangelo excelled, and which are, of course, the three represented on his tomb in Santa Croce. So if you think of painting, there's not so much of that in Florence, but, of course, there's the Sistine Chapel as a major example of his painting. The sculpture is better represented in Florence. We'll be talking about that again. And then architecture. Remember, we did talk a little bit about the staircase and the reading rooms of the Laurentian Library, which were Michelangelo's work. Michelangelo then was actually born in Florence in 1475. He was born in the Santa Croce district, so the poor area down by the river, a centre for the cloth industry, where perhaps he may have seen his first taste of the exotic in the shape of the cloths that were and dyes that were brought in and what was created by combining them. We do know that his own family was really very poor and that they found him unfathomable. His interest, right from the beginning, was really art, art and art, and they simply couldn't understand this. His father, particularly, was very keen that Michelangelo should know that his role was going to be to earn money for the family. And there were quite a lot of rows on those top, that topic. Although, in fact, to give Daddy's credit, when Michelangelo was 14, he was apprenticed to an artist, one Ghirlandaio, who was the master in charge of a big workshop at Santa Maria Novella. Ghirlandaio was a well-thought-of painter in his own right. People noticed particularly the way that he had the knack of putting contemporary people, well-known to everybody, familiar faces, in his religious paintings. And he drew really quite a following. But he was so impressed with his new apprentice that after he'd been there a little while, he was heard to utter, quote, This boy knows more than I do. He wasn't the only person who knew what he was talking about who noticed Michelangelo's talent early on because somebody else who did that was Lorenzo di Medici. Lorenzo, as we've said before, did a lot to patronise the arts in Florence, and one of the things he did was to set up a sculpture school in the Piazza San Marco. And one day he was passing by, came across a young Michelangelo who was busy working on a statue there, and noticed what he was doing. 
Michelangelo was working on the statue of an elderly man and Lorenzo apparently stopped and said, it really shouldn't have all its teeth, you know, if it's supposed to be an older man. And Michelangelo immediately thought, yes, he's right about that. And he stopped there and then, climbed up the statue and chipped one of the teeth. I think Lorenzo was very impressed with this young boy who was so keen to impress and to take advice when he was given it. So the next thing, he invited Michelangelo to join his household. Actually, to move into the Palazzo Medici, to live with the family, to eat at their table and to carry on then the work in the school because he really thought this was somebody who was worth encouraging. I'm going to quote you a paragraph from Christopher Hibbert's book, Florence, the Biography of a City, in which he talks about this relationship between Lorenzo de' Medici and Michelangelo and explains how keen Michelangelo was to make the absolute most of it. So this is what he writes, quote, Lorenzo always treated him with great respect. During that period, as salary and so that he could help his father, Michelangelo was paid five ducats a month. As an aside, it's interesting to note that Lorenzo was appreciative of the difficulties. This was a young boy who should really be contributing to family finances. And if he was going to be allowed to devote his life to art, not only did he need his own expenses covered, but Lorenzo realised he would have to help the family as well. So the quote goes on to explain how he did that. So, continuation. To make Michelangelo happy, Lorenzo gave him a violet cloak and appointed his father to a post in the customs. As a matter of fact, all the young men in the garden at San Marco were paid salaries. This place was full of antiques and richly furnished, with excellent pictures collected for their beauty and for study and pleasure. Michelangelo always kept the keys to this garden, as he was more earnest than the others. For example, he spent many months in the Church of the Carmine, making drawings from the pictures by Masaccio. He copied these with such judgment that the craftsmen and all the others who saw his work were astonished and he then started to experience envy as well as fame. In fact, that was Christopher Hibbert quoting Vasari, but the next little passage is Christopher Hibbert in his own words explaining that Michelangelo could be rather difficult and lose his temper, and this led him to making some enemies. And that in turn led to fisticuffs and an accident which changed the way Michelangelo looked for the rest of life. So this is what how Christopher Hibbert explains that. It was at this time that Michelangelo, a difficult man, critical, impatient and sardonic, had his celebrated quarrel with the Florentine sculptor Pietro Torrigiani, who was to make his reputation in England. This Buonarroti and I, from boyhood, used to go to study in Masaccio's chapel in the Church of the Carmine, Pietro Torrigiani told Benvenuto Cellini. And because Buonarroti was accustomed to make fun of all those who were drawing there, one day when he was annoying me... He aroused in me more anger than usual, and clenching my fist, I gave him so violent a blow upon the nose that I felt the bone and the cartilage break under the stroke as if it had been a biscuit, and thus marked by me, he will remain as long as he lives. A number of people noted how obsessively Michelangelo studied his art and his craft and practised, practised, practised. He was forever copying the works of earlier masters, for example Giotto, Donatello, he liked to copy Greek and Roman works as well. And perhaps more unusually, or more esoterically, he decided that he needed to study anatomy. He wanted to know how the human body was put together so that he would be able to reflect that in his work. What he did to achieve that was he took the habit of letting himself into the mortuary at night so that he could be alone with the dead bodies and have plenty of time to draw them and also, in fact, to cut them up and draw the insides. 
In one of the chapters of the Irving Stone book, The Agony and the Ecstasy, there is in fact a wonderful description of a night spent exactly doing that. I recommend it to you. It's a long but excellent read. For a very quick version, though, here's Vasari on the same topic. So describing how Michelangelo spent such long hours drawing corpses, he wrote the following, These labours enabled him to complete his works with inimitable perfection and to give them a grace, a beauty and an animation that surpass even the antique. Michelangelo also applied himself very assiduously to the question of perspective. And the result of all of this practice and talent combined was the fact that by the age he was 30, he was acknowledged to be a master. His reputation was spreading and it wasn't long before he was lured to Rome by Pope Julius II to work on the Sistine Chapel. Florence, I think, would have preferred to hang on to to Michelangelo, but I guess if the Pope wanted something, it wasn't a good idea to refuse. So off he went and he then spent a a lot more of his time working in Rome although he would return to Florence sometimes to do some work. And he was very specific on the fact that when he died, he wanted his body returned to Florence so that he could be buried there in his home city. So while I'm talking about Florence and its Michelangelo connections, here's just a very quick rundown of what you can find where in Florence. So at San Lorenzo and in the nearby Medici Chapel, there are various sculptures of his, one called Dawn and Dusk, and his sculptures of the Dukes Lorenzo and Giuliano. In the Laurentian Library, also just next door, there's the staircase in the reading room. If you remember, we talked about the Temple A staircase that was a little bit of a joke, so where he painted pillars on the walls, for example, which weren't supporting anything, and filled most of a tiny room just with a massive staircase. To see the Pieta, you need to go to the Cathedral Museum, the Museo dell'Opera del Duomo, to give it its Italian title. In the Bargello, you'll find his statue of Bacchus, one a statue called the Pitti Madonna, and a statue of Brutus. And in the Academia, then, is a second Pieta, known as the Palestrina Pieta, the Four Captives statue, and, of course, the Statue of David. Just going to give a little bit more detail on two of his most famous works, starting with the Pieta, the one which you'll find in the Cathedral Museum, which is a statue of Mary with her dead son Jesus in her lap after the crucifixion. And here too I recommend to you a chapter called The City in the book The Agony and the Ecstasy, written by Irving Stone, where he goes into quite a lot of detail about how he imagines Michelangelo set about creating this statue. Very much based on known facts, but I think perhaps with a little bit of imagination thrown in. So he starts by describing Michelangelo reading the Bible extract, which talks about the body of Jesus after the crucifixion, describes Joseph of Arimathea taking his body away from the cross with the following words, He brought with him a mixture of myrrh and aloes of about a hundred pounds weight. They took Jesus' body then and wrapped it in winding clothes with the spices. That is how the Jews prepare a body for burial. So Michelangelo was thinking about the dead body, and the reverence with which it was treated. Then we see him go on to think about the two figures that are going to be in the statue, realising that Jesus will have to be passive, and that all the emotion from the statue will have to come from Mary. He thinks about her anguish and how to convey that, and he thinks about more technical issues. So how is he going to put the larger body of a man in the lap of a woman without it looking ungainly? The author shows us Michelangelo 
making sketches, trying this out. Tells of him going down into the streets of Florence and looking at the nuns and wondering whether he could copy their expression in some way for the face of Mary. Describes him doing very practical things, such as buying yards of inexpensive material and soaking it in mud and then folding it and drawing the way it looked when it was folded, as if it was hanging down from Mary's skirts. It's a really detailed description that may be partly imagined, I think, but which gives you a real insight into how an artist like Michelangelo may have set about producing his finished work. Gives you food for thought, things to think about when you're actually looking at the statue itself. Wanted to give just a little bit of background detail on the statue of David as well, which was commissioned in 1501. It was originally intended to go on the roof of the cathedral, but when the finished product was looked at, it was decided that it was too big, and also the fact that it was naked meant that perhaps they didn't feel it was that appropriate for the roof of a cathedral. Michelangelo worked obsessively on this statue in the cathedral workshop. He kept it hidden. He didn't want anybody to see it until it was finished. And it took him four years to complete. He was 29 when it was finished. One of the aspects which was very much seen as a triumph was the fact that he had carved it from a piece of stone which had in fact had a crack in it and which had been rejected by other artists, including even Leonardo da Vinci. But Michelangelo decided it was right for him and the finished product was much admired almost immediately for its depiction of youth and grace and also because it was seen in some ways as a symbol of Florence. Florence was one city-state with a lot of other enemy areas and other city-states to worry about and it's thought that people saw the triumph of David over the, the giant Goliath armed only with a sling as some kind of metaphor for the fact that Florence too could hold her own. This is explained quite well by Vasari who knew that David had gone on to be a very admired ruler and who thought that his story had something to teach the people who were ruling Florence. So he wrote, quote, Just as he defended and justly governed his people, they who rule the city must defend it courageously and govern it justly. So it's not just today when it's a lure for the tourists that it's a symbol of the city. It really always was. The immediate problem when it was finished was where to put it. First of all, they had to start by demolishing the workshop so that they could move it out, and it was decided to build a platform for it outside the Palazzo della Signoria and put it on display there, really centrally in the city. They had to build a wooden framework to transport it. We're told that it took 40 men four days to pull it along. It's actually only about a quarter of a mile from the cathedral to the Piazza della Signoria, but they weren't going to rush and risk anything. And when they got it there, it took another three weeks to mount it onto the plinth. And there it stayed for the next 400 years. It was a little damaged on occasions, particularly, for example, in 1527, there were riots in Florence as the Medici were leaving the city, and somebody flung a bench out of the window in the Palazzo Vecchio and hit the statue. But it wasn't until 1991 that it was actually moved and taken to where it is now in the Accademia. People were increasingly worried about weather damage and in fact there had been an incident where somebody had vandalised one of the toes with a hammer and I think it was just decided that really to be safe it would have to be taken inside somewhere. So there we have it, Michelangelo, one of Florence's best known sons and someone I think who actually deserves his reputation not just because of what he produced but because he really did throughout his life just show this tremendous passion for art 
to the point, in fact, where he's said to have gone to bed fully clothed on lots of occasions because that would save the bother of getting dressed and undressed and save him time which he could spend on his art. He himself used to say that art was the most important thing and what he produced was more important to him than what he was paid for it. And there's a nice example of something he said about a different painter on that very topic being dismissive that this man apparently only worked for money and that what he said was, quote, while he works to become rich, he will always continue to be a poor painter. For all that he spent quite a lot of his later life in Rome and left much of his best work in Rome, he was always a son of Florence. He'd made it quite clear that that was where he wanted to be buried when he died and Duke Cosimo, no less, asked people in Rome to watch Michelangelo at the end of his life and to organise to bring his body home when he died and in fact that is exactly what they did. They loaded it onto a cart, covered it with cloth so they wouldn't be stopped and set off. He died on the 18th of February 1564 and his body arrived back in Florence on the 9th of March taken first to the Palazzo Vecchio for various official formalities to be completed and then his coffin was carried by artists from the Accademia to the Church of Santa Croce where Michelangelo's father had been buried and where he too was going to be laid to rest. The procession was said to have been followed by approximately a thousand people each of whom carried a burning torch through the city streets. He was buried then in a tomb in the main body of the Church of Santa Croce and the monument to go on the tomb was designed and made by Vasari. It took him about 10 years, but the finished work has a bust of Michelangelo himself on it and three statues to his muses, painting, sculpture and architecture. It's said that in his will, Michelangelo left, quote, his soul to God, his body to the earth and his goods to his nearest relatives. But his legacy to the rest of us, of course, is his works, known worldwide and rooted in his beloved home city of Florence, referred to, if you remember the Fasari quote earlier, as, quote, the birthplace of this divinely endowed spirit. So that concludes the episode on Michelangelo, it being the middle of a series of three on the great art in Florence. And so in the next episode, I'm going to move for the last of the three episodes to the Uffizi Museum possibly the world's best-known art gallery, full stop. Talk a little bit about the history of it, about people who've visited it over the centuries, and about one or two of the artists featured there whom we haven't already mentioned in another context. So I hope very much that you'll be able to join me for that. And we'll now just like to sign off by saying thank you, grazie, for your kind attention. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. And goodbye. Arrivederci. <laughs>